Hey there. You know, nothing says rattlesnake preparedness like bringing your own set of maracas on a hike. This is Wildlife with Devin and Richard Boker, a podcast that blends science, nature, and the human experience through storytelling and interviews with Earth's experts. I'm Devin. And I'm Richard. So, pretty much since we started this podcast, we've been wanting to do this episode, and now we're finally doing it. Yes, this is the fungus among us. And we have two guests, Dr. Tom Volk of UW-La Crosse, and I sat down and chatted it up with them separately, and holy cow, pun intended, you'll see, we covered a lot of ground. Everything from how mushrooms are made, to the best mushrooms to forage, how fungi hunts, fungi in the brain, whether or not baker's yeast is the same organism associated with yeast infections, SpongeBob SquarePants, and the secrets of an underground economy. Sort of a fungi gringotts. So, let's get to it. It's important to encourage young people to ask questions about nature and to get more involved with nature. We have one Earth. We know less about the bottom of the ocean than we do about the moon. Keep your eyes open. Okay, now to get to it. First up, Dr. Tom Volk. Okay. Um, now yeah. it's recording. Okay. okay. Hi, I'm uh, Tom Volk, and I'm a professor of biology at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, and I am a mycologist. He's being modest. He's a professor of biology at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and teaches courses on mycology, medical mycology, plant-microbe interactions, food and industrial mycology, advanced mycology, organismal biology, and Latin and Greek for scientists. He's got one of the oldest websites on the internet, Tom Volk's Fungi, http colon backslash backslash tomvolkfungi.net, which has a popular fungus of the month feature and an extensive introduction to the kingdom fungi. Besides dabbling in mushroom cultivation, Tom has worked on the genera Morcella, which are morels, Chantorellis, uh, which are chanterelles, hinellum, which is a tooth fungus, tooth, tooth fungus, which is just a horrible name, uh, amarilla, which are honey mushrooms, and uh, latiporus, which is like chicken of the woods and sulfur shelf, as well as several medical mycology projects. He also studies prairie mycorrhizae, uh, mycoprospecting, and fungi involved in coal formation, which is like, what? Also, he has conducted fungal biodiversity studies in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Alaska, and Israel, which is so random, but very, very cool. He's lectured in 35 states so far, and is a very popular speaker at many amateur and professional mycological events throughout North America, including many NAMA and NEMF forays. Okay, diving right in. So, mycologist, myco, um, that's Greek. Is that just Greek for for fungi or for yes. fungus? Or and logi, okay. of course, is a study of. I actually teach a course in Latin and Greek for scientists, so I'm glad you're paying oh, really? attention to the Greek roots. Yeah, it's it's kind of like this. Um, it's like a secret obsession of mine, especially lately. I, I like spend a lot of time trying to figure out what some of these different meanings are. Uh, yesterday, I did this um, thing about sandhill cranes, and I realized that the genus is Antigone, and there's this whole Greek mythology yeah. thing in that. And I thought that was really um, 
I looked at uh, ostrich recently and realized it's basically ostrich camel, um, which I found mildly upsetting, but, you know, it's, it's <laughs> okay. So maybe before we get into some of the nitty-gritty of things, um, uh, why why fungi? What what was it in, in your life? Was it, you know, did you find a mushroom in your childhood that sparked your interest? What, what kind of got you on that track? Maybe he's just a fun guy. I never paid attention to mushrooms until I took a course in college at Ohio University in Athens, and I found out you could get free food. I like this guy already. <laughs> that was very appealing to a college student. If you knew what you were doing, you could go out and get free food, and if you didn't know what you are doing, you could die. So that's a little bit of a danger in there. I actually poisoned my roommates once uh, accidentally. Oh, no. they, uh, not very badly poisoned. So I had a, a big mushroom, a chicken of the woods, and they decided they were going to eat some of it, and they ate it raw, and they got really sick, and they weren't supposed to eat it raw. So they were taking my food without my permission, so I would feel really that bad. So I looked it up, and eating chicken of the woods without cooking it, uh, and it, it appears to be only the case with certain species, but it causes upset stomach, nausea, vomiting, puffy lips, and all that kind of um, but just to play it safe, always cook your cow. I don't want to be responsible for blowing up your toilet, which, by the way, I don't know if I had told you this already or not, but a couple weeks ago, um, we were all up in, you know, at, at the lake, and there's this porta potty kind of thing that had been out in the sun all day, and Chelsea went to open it. When she opened it up, all that pressure was uh, relieved in the form of an explosion of porta potty liquid. <laughs> like right into her face <laughs> and, and there was like toilet paper bits all over the place. It was horrible. Um, I didn't get to see it. I wish that I did. Um, but Jack saw it and he came, he comes running out and he's like, it's okay, mom. And she comes running by and jumps into the water, freaking out. It was really funny. Anyway. So <laughs> that, that actually brings up a question I've had. I, so I was leading a hike, uh, last weekend, came across a big patch of chicken in the woods. I'm, just now kind of getting to a point where I'm learning what some of the different ones are. That mm -hmm. one's kind of fairly obvious looking. I did not realize, it's a good thing I haven't done it yet, I didn't know that you had to cook it first. Um, oh. So that's probably a good thing. Is there, is there a difference between chicken of the woods and hen of the woods? Yeah, they're totally different from one another. Hen okay. of the woods is this sort of gray-brown thing that has looks like leaves, which is the where the scientific name comes from. And then chicken of the woods is bright orange. They're not related at all. There's too many chickens and hens in mycology. Yeah. After that then what was your what was your sort of academic path? What what have you done? Well so I that? decided I was gonna to go to grad school and I had to figure out what that what I would study and I decided to study fungi uh, because I liked it and it was weird enough for me. And so that's what I decided to do. And then I went to uh, grad school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and that's how I got to Wisconsin. And so I worked on the life cycle of morels. Morels are those popular edible mushrooms with a honeycomb-like appearance of their cap. They also can't be eaten raw, just like chicken of the woods. I uh, did a lot of cytology, studying the cells, and a little genetics, things like that. So um, that was kind of fun. And then I did a postdoc at the Forest Products Lab, which is also in Madison, and I learned how to identify wood decay fungi and learned all about fungi that eat wood. So from uh, there's a lot of different kinds that do that, and this okay. is a lot of wood. 
And then in 1996, I got a job at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. And so I've been there ever since. So I, I'm almost embarrassed to ask this um, because clearly uh, at this point, this kind of thing is probably very in, more than basic to you. Um, I've always had this sort of like uh, uh, mild discomfort um, when it comes to fungi. And I'm, I'm trying to get over the whole, you know, like, I used to just not never touch them. I, I never wanted to eat them. Never want to touch them. And and they're 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 kind of like their own thing. Like when you order a pizza at Papa John's or something, they list them under veggies, but, Ooh, but they're Papa not John. veggies. They're not plants, right? So what what exactly is a fungi? The fungi have their own kingdom. Uh, they're separate from the plants and the animals, and lots of other weird king. There's about fourteen or fifteen kingdoms now. Uh, oh, so my probably more than you think. <laughs> Yeah, but but in any case, the in the old two kingdom system where there were just plants and animals, the fungi were put with the plants because they didn't move and they had a cell wall and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, it turns out that fungi are more closely related to the animals and by a, by a great distance. You know, so we're more closely related to fungi than fungi are related to plants. That is so cool and so weird to me at the same time. This occurred 800 to 900 million years ago and was a protist with traits of both animals and fungi. So we share a lot of a lot of physiology. So when mm -hmm. people are doing experiments with physiology of humans, they often use a yeast as the animal, you know, animal like thing that they're that they're studying the and so they you know, we share a lot of physiology with them. You know, there's some huh. differences of course, but but you can use yeast as a surrogate. So 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 structure. Uh, what is a, they have a cell wall. So the cell wall is made of chitin, which is okay. a, a large polymer, and they want where, so where else do you know chitin from? Any idea? So that's the exoskeleton. Yeah, isn't that like in insects? Insects, yeah. yeah the exoskeleton okay. of insects and crustaceans is made of chitin. So that's another joining link between fungi and animals. Um, but uh, all the fungi kept the chitin. And so they uh, have cell walls that grow in, mostly grow in filaments, you know, that we call hyphae. Hyphae or uh, hyphae comes from the Greek word for web, by the way. And they um, grow through their substrate. So the food, they grow through their food. Right? And when they, when, they, when they grow through their food, they, they eat it in a different way than we do. So when we take, we take our food in, and we uh, take it into our bodies and we digest it inside our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. And so fungi find their food and then they dump their enzymes to the outside and they digest outside their bodies and then they take in the small molecules that they digested back into their body that they can use their metabolism. Don't starfish do that? Kind of. It's, it's a little different because they have something called a cardiac stomach or at least a lot of species of starfish and it's almost like putting out their entire stomach around whatever it is that they're eating. So a little bit different, but yeah. Is, so do they just kind of absorb it, like wherever it ends up around their body, they just kind of suck there it up? Special, is, there are special places to absorb it, but yeah, right at the tip. Everything happens at the tip. If people did that, I can only imagine. Um, so you could, you, could go to your, you could go to your fancy restaurant and order the Serpent Turf or the Tofu Surprise <laughs> or whatever, and you could dump your enzymes out into the food and wait a little bit for it to digest and then stick your hands in it and absorb the small molecules uh, that you use for metabolism. 
very lovely thing to visualize, I must say. That that sounds fancy. That should be the next. That's like the next, like uh, the next big thing in food. It should be a Food Network show. Yeah, that's it. Kind of so. I've told my students <laughs> to try it, and if they, if but if they do, they should they should tape it so that I can see it. There you have it, folks. Next time you go to Red Lobster, it is of the utmost importance that you vomit on your Cheddar Bay biscuits, insert all ten fingers, and suck up all the goodness. No human mouth parts needed. So you, they move through their food doing this. So is it almost like... So, so where they live is where they eat. And okay. So, that's how, so it's almost that's like, a, like a navigation way too, right? So like to, to be able to move through things, they basically it, digest it? Yes. And so they're able to digest a log or something like that or in your brain. Uh, they can grow through all of that and, um, you know, and absorb nutrients and then break down the whole substrate, the whole, the whole food. Yeah, so if you happen to be watching the video of this interview, you'd see this drastic contortion of my face muscles right now. And what's going through my head is, wait, 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 what? Who just who just drops that so casually? What, what, what does that mean? I need to know. You'll find out soon, right after the break. Hey, this is Teacher Who Hikes, Chelsea. And today I'm out in the woods and I'm having a blast. Um, so I'm not like Devin, right? I don't, I'm not a nature person. Like, I don't know a lot of kingdom phylum class order family genus species, right? What I know is how to use my phone as like many of y'all do. So, um, what I've been doing out here is I have been taking pictures with this app called Seek, S as in snake, E, E, K. And man, I'm just having a blast. I've learned about so many different kinds of mushrooms and all that stuff. Right now is the time to get out and see mushrooms, by the way, especially if you're in the Minnesota area. Um, So yeah, I recommend you give it a try. I do not recommend that you believe it 100% of the time because technology is not perfect for that yet either. So don't go eating something because you think it's edible. No, but it's just a great way to kind of get started and start to learn about mushrooms and maybe you'll become obsessed like me. So yeah, that's my tip of the week. Booyah. Okay, time to get back to it. Did you say brain? I did say brain. Okay. So there are fungi that can grow in your brain like cryptococcus, um, mm. causes some meningitis and then can get into the brain as well. Oh, is that what meningitis is from? It's from a fungi? There's a lot of different kinds of meningitis. So oh, cryptococcus okay. meningitis is one of them. There's a viral, a bacterial. There's you know, Meninges are just the lining of the brain, so anything that infects that is a meningitis. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay, okay. so so you can get a fungal. How, how does one get a fungal infection like that so that I can avoid it? Um, usually it's through inhalation. So okay. if you don't want a fungal infection, don't breathe. Okay. It's usually in a person that has an, a compromised immune system, you know, whether it's from okay. um, AIDS or transplants or corticosteroids or anything like that. It can suppress sure. the immune system, and that leads the way for fungi to take over. Actually, take, taking a lot of amb- antibiotics can do that, too, because you kill off the bacteria, and then sure. the fungi just have a free reign to grow wherever they want. Oh, okay, so you're eliminating that competition, and right. suddenly they've got room to grow. Right, and that particularly happens in uh, yeast infections in women. You know, there's a normal flora there, and you know the, they're kept in checks and balance by each other, 
And if something happens to the bacteria, the yeast can take over. And okay. so that's it's a pretty common thing to happen. You know, on that exact note, I actually had this question from a listener um, about if the the yeast that you use to bake is the same kind that causes those types of infections, or if they're completely different types of. They're, they're completely different. Uh, okay. they're, uh, yeast is just a morphological term that refers okay. to a single-celled fungus. And there okay. are, you know, thousands of different kinds of yeasts. And it mm -hmm. turns out that the one, the Saccharomyces that uh, you use in bread is not very closely related to the candida that causes you know, yeast infections in people. Okay. Well, that, that will clear that up for that person. It's closely related as we are to mice. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so, there's, so there's some distance there. Um, you, you mentioned antibiotics removing competition and that kind of allowing them to spread. Now, is that, is that why, um, maybe not why, but one of the things that leads to why fungi are located where they are? Um, more specifically, I guess, thinking about like, um, you know, when I roll over a log, there's really no other plants growing there, but there's a lot of fungi. There's all kinds right. of the, the hyphae and um, is, is that kind of, is it a competition thing or is it something else that's driving that? So most fungi will grow in the dark. They can grow in the light, okay. but, they, but they mostly grow in the dark. And plants obviously can't because they have to do photosynthesis. And so mm -hmm. their roots may be down there in with the, with the fungi, but mm -hmm. most of the time the fungi are associated with their roots. Sure. Uh, as well as decaying the wood. And so there's lots of scenarios where things happen under logs. There's a whole little ecosystem in there with insects yeah. and worms and what have you. Okay. So one of the ways to compete is to make antibiotics. So a lot of fungi make chemicals that kill off the bacteria, that kill off their competitors. And so that's where we get penicillin and cephalosporin and all kinds of antibiotics like that. Cephalosporin is a modern antibiotic mostly used to treat minor bacterial infections, especially good for people who are allergic to penicillin, for things like sinus, ear infections, UTIs, and strep. And no, it's not where Neosporin gets its name. Uh, oh, so it's, a, it's an adaptation that's that's come about to remove competition, right? Kind of like as a, not maybe not a toxin, but like a, as a toxin of some sort. It's a toxin for the for the bacteria. Sure. It's all about perspective. Do fungi when they're when they're moving about, they're doing their thing. Well, real quick, how how fast? Can they grow throughout the soil or, or whatever? Does it range? Um, it's I, I don't know the answer to that exactly, but it's it can be relatively quick if the conditions are right. So it might okay. grow a centimeter okay. to a day. Okay. Or, or okay. sometimes faster if there's no competition or no, you know, we have studies mm -hmm. on auger plates in the lab and they can grow, you know, faster than that. It can many fungi can fill a plate in two days so we're talking okay. about you know a plate that's maybe five inches across and they could fill the plate in two days okay some are faster than others um so so normally we think of them as sort of decomposers or, or breaking things down um or kind of going on decaying matter is there ever a circumstance where uh fungi their, their body i guess moving through um can take like something, something that's living? Yes. And, okay. Yeah, so uh, don't think of it as moving. Think of it as growing. 
And so uh, there are fungi that are parasites. And so they can grow into a plant or tree or person and grow on them and in them. Um, And so, you know, we have things like ringworm that grow on us. And uh, there are some things that you inhale into your lungs that that grow a lot um, if you're immune suppressed. Again, this is the case with most fungal infections. I mean, you may get something like, say, ringworm. But fungi usually can't infect a human unless they're pretty immune suppressed. Like if you're affected by something else already, like HIV or cancer or a recent organ transplant. Like our guest here, actually. But more on that in a little bit. Richard, do you remember when you had ringworm and you thought it was an actual worm? (laughs) And you were kind of freaking out. In my defense, I had never had a fungal infection before. And it does say worm in the name. (laughs) Um, and if it hits a tree, uh, many of them are specialized for a particular tree, like Dutch elm disease, only affects sure. elm trees, uh, chestnut blight only in chestnut, and so it has to find the right thing to eat. And when it does, then it can start digesting the, the food that it finds. Okay. And so, uh, so a parasite, by definition, harms the host organism. But there are, okay. some, there are some fungi that are mutualistic with their host. And so that means that both organisms benefit from the relationship. Sure. And so the, for example, we have mycorrhizae. So mycorrhizae mm-hmm. is a relationship between a plant and a fungus. Uh, okay. So mycorrhiza means fungus root. There's your Greek. And so these are a natural association in nature. About 90% of plants have mycorrhizae. 90%. I feel like a lot of people are just completely unaware of this relationship in nature, and yet it is this common and important. So um, so the, the tree gives the sugars to the fungus, and in return, the fungus scavenges for minerals and water that it needs from the soil because they're way better at it than the plants are. Uh, the fungi have a huge surface area, and they can absorb a lot of things that the plant can't. One of my favorite examples of this is springtails. In fact, the fact that this even happens was discovered by accident by John uh, Cleronimos and Miranda Hatt at the University of Gulf in Canada about 15 years ago. They put springtails in these trays with uh, 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 hyphae, and they wanted to see pretty much how how much they ate and and how exactly that worked. They were trying to figure out the behavior because for a long time it was um, thought that springtails were probably a a predator of sorts of this network. And as it turned out, less than 5% of the springtails were alive when they returned to their trays. Um, The hyphae had moved through some of the springtails and some of them were still alive, but their nutrients were being sucked out of them and, and and into the fungi, like something out of a crazy micro horror movie. And so there's this kind of back and forth thing to um, to benefit one another. And they sure. don't they don't consciously think about it, right? But they're you know, right. That's the end result. That's just funny to me because you always think. I mean, you you learn. Um, you know, tree tree roots do this. Tree roots suck up nutrients and water, and that's how. So you're saying that. In fact, actually, fungi are much better at it and actually do a lot of it for, for the plants. Without fungi, plants probably would never have moved onto land. Really? Is that, is that because of the, like, the nutrients needed for that rigidity uh, that they would right. probably just kind of be 
I mean, like they, can do, they can do photosynthesis, but they can't do all the things that the fungi can do for them in the soil. Interesting. So do things like uh, redwoods, do they have really strong mycorrhizal connections then, or are they it's just... They do, but they act, the the redwoods actually have some of the smallest mycorrhizae. Uh, really? They're, they're small uh, organisms, uh, and you know things like a pine tree though have these you know big mushrooms that come up under them, but redwoods do not. On the subject of mushrooms, then, the so the the body this is webby white filamentous stuff underground, right? This is particularly fascinating to me because before getting into this, honestly, I just thought the mushroom was it. Like how a flower is a flower with the stem and leaves and petals and all that. So what what is the mushroom and why does it look so different? Yeah, so the when the mycelium, the hyphae are growing underground, uh, they are perfectly happy in there as long as there's enough food. Uh, but if it turns to a certain season, uh, starting to get cold, uh, many of them uh, seek the surface. Okay. And the light for them is a signal that they need to make a, a mushroom. So they, if you think about it, it makes sense because if it makes a mushroom inside the log, what good is that? So it has to know that it's outside. So it uses the light and it uses the, uh, the relationship between carbon dioxide and oxygen, the ratio, uh, to be able to determine that it's outside. And then it makes it, and then, so it differentiates different kinds of cells that stick together. And if you think about uh, a bunch of, if you, if you have one straw, you could, sure. uh, you could break it very easily. But if you have 4,000 straws, you probably can't break that very easily. <laughs> And yeah. so that's what it is. It's all these hyphae that are lining up to make the mushroom. So when you, you get the stem of a mushroom, for example, you can kind of peel it because those are the, the parallel hyphae that are growing yeah. up. Uh, and then it, at the top of that, it makes um, uh, the, the cap and the gills and everything else it needs to reproduce. Okay. So it turns out that, that all of that is already formed when the mushroom is about a, 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 less than a centimeter tall. So all the really? tissue are there ready to go, and it just sucks in water and all the cells enlarge. So that's, oh, why, they can, that's why they can grow so fast. Reminds me of those toy figurines you put in water, like a, like a pickle jar for like a week, and then they get like a few times bigger. Jack, he gets those all the time, usually like the dinosaur egg ones. <laughs> and I always laugh because like... <laughs> On the box, it shows like this, you know, like a like a legit looking dinosaur. Like it looks good, and then you soak it in the water for a while, and it just it just looks all deformed and it's like swollen in the wrong spots, and they never look quite right. Yeah, those things never work. <laughs> okay. The, the, all the cells are there already. All the cell division has taken place, um, but all that has to happen now is to suck in water and and extend all those cells. Really? So it's just kind of a yeah. You know, I've wondered that because. Last weekend, I was looking at this really, really tiny mushroom on a stump. Next morning, I come out, and it was substantially larger. And I I was kind of shocked. I was like, "What? what is that growth rate that's going on down there? So you're just saying it's kind of just, uh, it's like it's, it's it's puffing itself up. It's inflating with, with water. Somewhere. Yeah, that's, that's, okay. that's a good analogy. Okay. And... And mushrooms are, are the, they're, they're basically the reproductive organ. So you, you've got... Yeah. You are about to hear something, and I just want to say ahead of time, before you do, 
I am so sorry for this. Please forgive me. <laughs> for, for a terrible comparison, um, so like if a person covered themselves up with sand on the beach and then all that was remaining outward. That's that's basically what we're talking about when we're looking at a mushroom. Is it's just the yeah, the, um, the reproductive organ. That uh, is actually true. <laughs> it's a that's, a that's a really weird analogy. I don't know if I'll use that in class. It is, <laughs> and I'm um, very sorry that that was the first thing that came to my mind. But that, <laughs> um, that's a good okay, analogy. So that, I think it's a good analogy. So that you know, th yes, that's uh, sticking up above ground, and there uh, and so. There are uh, the mushrooms are you know this outside thing that is doing all the reproduction. Okay. So the spores are produced from there, and then most of the time they blow around and they have to land somewhere where they can grow. So I, I guess I've never one hundred percent truly understood what exactly is a spore. Um, it's sort of just an analog for uh, sperm or or eggs. It's just a a packet of genetic information. So there's, a, okay. there's an enormous amount of what we would call waste uh, because mm -hmm. it might produce a billion spores and two of them might grow somewhere. They might land so in the So those spores go into the hyphae then? The spores germinate and grow into hyphae, yes. Okay. okay. And then for most fungi, you have to find a mate in order to make wow. a mushroom. And so that probably happens, you know, it happens a lot in nature and uh, they form the secondary mycelium. Uh, and then that's the one that's capable of fruiting. So, how, I mean, how do you... Um, I've got several questions stemming off of this. So, uh, how do you differentiate then, looking underground, at, at which is which organism? Or is that getting into almost a gray area about, like, what is an organism? Um, yeah. I mean, do they... Do, do the hyphen, like, could separate bodies connect? And how does that, how does that look? So we can talk about the humongous fungus, which is uh, one of the largest organisms that are known. Uh, the largest one we know of is 3,500 acres in Oregon. But not the largest. We're saving that for a future episode. And wow. okay. so it's big, but it's all underground. And so the way that huh. they proved that that was a single organism was to take, uh, put, actually put popsicle sticks in, in uh, the soil at various places along where they thought it might be, and uh -huh. then collected the, the fungus that grew on the sticks, uh, and then did DNA sequencing on it. And they, so they, the more sticks they put in, they could try to find where the limit of this organism was. And so they could map the outside of it and then find all the insides of it as well. So it's a, it's a pretty slick technique. See, science isn't always lab coats and beakers. Sometimes it's popsicle sticks. So with, I have, I have, um, it, it's sort of a, a, a blooming hobby. I've, I've said kind of getting into uh, uh, mushrooms and stuff and, and fungi in general. I've, I've been looking at some pictures and I keep coming across some that are just, uh, 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 what's the word? I mean, I, I'm not really sure if there is a word, but kind of, um, Depending on the fungi and, and then the names, there's some very peculiar names out there, uh, and with the common names and stuff. And then you you look at them, and sometimes it's like this level of shock that's like, oh, that's what that radio DJ host looks like. I never would have guessed. And sometimes it's just like you're almost taken aback, like it's this. Uh, what was it? Uh, devil, the devil's finger. Seriously, if you haven't ever seen a devil's finger fungi, you need to look it up. It looks like 
I really don't know how to explain it. It looks like uh, uh, kind of like the like the face sucker eggs from the alien movies that open up and or or or, or maybe like an upside down octopus that's covered in bloody slime. Um, none of these things really do it justice, no matter how disgusting they sound. Fungi. That one threw me for a loop. Is there is there a, an evolutionary reason for um, the coloration or like some of these really bizarre structures like like that one it, it looked like an egg that like hatched into a squid hand thing yeah and uh what are you talking about yeah is there is there a reason um so, evolutionarily, so evolution, evolution doesn't have reason true yes god devin you idiot uh, <laughs> I there, are, there are things that are that happen Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are things that are selected for uh, by the conditions that are present. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also things that are not selected against because they don't really matter. Okay. And so okay. There, are, there are a lot of things that are just there, and there isn't a, a quote-unquote reason for them, uh, but they that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And so these the fungi, that, like you're describing, ended up with a different strategy they uh, they make a really slimy stinky spore mass uh, inside mm-hmm. on top of them and they attract flies to it and beetles and things like that and that's how the spores are spread oh okay okay so kind of like that uh that rotten meat plant yeah of kind of method. so this is the you know the same idea they fly between these and they might pick up spores from another one and then they leave their spores somewhere accidentally. They've already mated. Uh, mm-hmm. Spores have already mated because there's two ones from each kind. Sure. Uh, and then they, you know, they, and so it's cheaper for the fungus to do that. Okay. So there are a lot of these things that were selected for uh, because the insects were there as well. Okay. That, that makes more sense then. I, I, and it's funny because with students and stuff, I drill it into them that evolution has no rhyme or reason. It's selection and stuff. And yeah. so, and I, I fall into my own, <laughs> fall into my own trap, fall into the same trap. Okay. You should be ashamed. How many, um, how many species of fungi are there? Do you know? So there, there are about a hundred thousand that have names. Okay. And, and we think that there are as many as 1.5 million species. So okay. we know, we know fewer than 5% of them. Wow. Wow. And so, you, know, you can go out and collect new species. My students find something that's probably new every year, even though we've collected in the same same area for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So they keep finding something new. I so uh, another another weird side. I have a lot of side interests. Um, <laughs> that I, I'm I'm a man of many hats, I guess. Um, so I I've also been really into these these ideas of these micro ecosystems and. Um, especially in like a house um so is there is there any measure of like so in an average midwestern home um in your kitchen or in your bathroom or i mean in the house itself any i like uh, how many species of fungi you might be living with and interacting with on a daily basis not know i have no idea i would guess more than 100 some of them are probably pretty minor i mean if you think about the, the fungi that are used to make your food you have some beer in the refrigerator so you're interacted with that uh, you might have some blue cheese. Uh, you might be taking penicillin. You know, so there's a lot of even food products that you know. Sure. Yeah. Be interactive. Yeah. And is mildew 
is mildew like in your tub? Is is that is that fungi? Yeah, That's mildew is just a weird word for a fungus, a uh, mold that looks wet. So by that logic, Norman Reedus is a mildew. Oh, okay. And so okay. there's there's usually uh, a couple different kinds of them that are in the in the bathroom. There's a okay. pink one. You might have seen a pink one in your toilet sometimes. That's a yeast. Uh-huh. So, and but most of the ones that grow there are black. So thinking about, you mentioned food, um, and eating them. Uh, what are you just personally? What's your what's your favorite? What's your favorite to to eat? Do you have a favorite maybe that is your favorite to buy at the store and eat compared to um, finding yourself to eat? Is there yeah. A so the my favorite one to eat is chanterelles. And so chanterelles are this bright orange uh, mushroom-looking thing uh, that smells like apricots. Oh, really? And so they're very good. Um, huh. they, they go well in cooking, and they're, uh, they pair with pork really well, and huh. they're just good by themselves. My favorite one to buy in the store is a relatively new one that's there, and that's called the King Oyster, the King Trumpet. Uh, uh-huh. is a... Uh, comes from Asia. It's an oyster mushroom species, but it's it has a very long shelf life, and I think it has a really good flavor. So mm. to buy that in the store, it, they look really weird, uh, but <laughs> they look they're mostly stem and a little bit of cap on the top. But the stem you can cut sort of crosswise, and you can make fake um, scallops out of it. Oh, huh? So it's really good. Huh. I've got to try that. We've been, um, my wife and I, we've been talking about um, uh, trying to move to more, you know, vegetarian or meatless, I guess, lunches and things like that, <laughs> and supplementing fungi. Um, yeah, fungi are, fungi are high in protein, so oh. and they have they have better protein profile than beans. They have really? All, they have all the amino acids, and in the quantities of things that we use the most, they have more than beans. Um, sort of like well. Uh, Chelsea and I have been uh, trying to do more meatless options and things and, and just really getting uh, just kind of interested in, in exploring the world of fungi a little bit more. Like Shake Shack has this really good portobello mushroom burger. Um, I actually don't know if the Impossible Whopper is a mushroom thing, like the Impossible Burger, if it's fungi or not. But I got to say... Actually, really, really good. Tried it the other day. Wouldn't even known it was not beef. And no, we are not sponsored by Shake Shack or Burger King. Okay. Um, so this this is one that uh, listeners kind of demanded that I ask about unanimously. Um, magic mushrooms. Uh, I, I see first, who you're tell her. Yeah. How how do they work? Like how what what is exactly going on that makes them magic? So they when they're eaten they are they flow through the bloodstream and they they get into the brain and it makes the neurons fire. So it's a okay. it's a serotonin analog I believe, and it makes the neurons fire randomly, and so that leads to you might say confusion, uh, different perception in the brain, uh, and that's where the hallucinations come from. So it's not just a, you know, something that hippies do. Oh, I like yeah. it. Uh, it's uh, used in medical research now. Uh, mm-hmm. Studies at Johns Hopkins have shown that it may be useful in end of life, uh, kind of uh, acceptance of that. 
Uh, other studies sure. shown uh, effects on PTSD and OCD. I've uh, seen that. I've seen that. I've been really intrigued. Cluster, cluster headaches. Okay. Uh, uh, depression. Really? And so, huh. you know, and recently Denver and I think Oakland decriminalized the, the possession of, of these magic mushrooms. So it's, you know, I think that eventually that's the next thing uh, to be used in, in medicine. I could see, I mean, I mean, do you know, I, I don't know the history of it, but do you, do, do you know the reason that these were criminalized to begin with? Probably the same reason the cannabis was. The same, just kind of. Yeah, I yeah. Think the same reason that alcohol was, was criminalized. Sure, sure. Same yeah, I've, I've wondered about that, and it just seems very, I've, I've seen pieces of research come out about, you know, treatment for, for post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that, and it just seems like there's a lot of medical use potential. Um, uh, I want to come back to, to this uh, specifically, but as far as other, like, applications of fungi in medicine, I'm, I know there's penicillin. Um, is a lot of it in like antibiotic use or are there, are there other kinds of uses? Well, most of the antibiotics come from fungi and they also come from uh, actinomycete bacteria. Filamentous bacteria are really uh -huh. big for uh, streptomyces and things like that. Uh, you've heard of streptomycin. Um, cyclosporin is a uh, made tra uh, transplant possible. And uh -huh. so that comes from... Uh, um, a fungus that grows on underground grubs, uh, larvae of insects, and no. then for some reason, some fig figured out that's a suppresses the immune system, and that made transplants possible. So, 13 years ago, I had a heart transplant, and if you were here, I would show you my heart, uh, but <laughs> not. And so, um, I take a drug called, cy the, called cyclosporin every day. And so that's the way the fungus has been helping me. I take also take a drug called mycophenolate, which is comes from a penicillium species. And so huh. those two drugs are the my main immune suppressants to keep me from rejecting my my new heart. You know that there's something almost, and I, I did see your your TED talk, and and I did see some things about that. And you, by the way, had some very very powerful things to say in that TED talk that have actually, since listening to it, um, resonated with me more so just in my personal life and how I'm kind of approaching things. And so I, I have a three-year-old right now, uh, and I have a, a two-month, two-month-old, and uh, so life has been busy. And there's a lot of things that, uh, when you really pause for a moment and take a deep breath, you realize are the small things. And the little things and to just you know to let it go and to, yeah. and to just appreciate the time and um, I, I, I found what you had to say to be um, uh, very very well put um, and, and there's something there's something just uh, kind of poetic in a sense about you know you being a, a mycologist and you teach medical mycology and 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 then having something like that happen in your life and then, you know, using fungi to kind of like that, there's just something really, um, really interesting there. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you ever get, do you ever get kind of a sense of like, um, I mean, do you ever kind of have that feeling of like, you know, that 
here I've spent my life, you know, studying studying these things, and then here it is, kind of working it for me personally. Like, yeah. Does that ever hit you? Yeah. You know, I you know that's why we do research. You know, when people were starting first starting to look at this uh, thing, nobody knew it had any uses. Uh, mm -hmm. so, but they studied it anyway, and then somebody figured out, hey, this is useful, and so yeah. that's really how a lot of a lot of research is. You know, you can you know people, a lot of people think basic research is dumb, uh, mm -hmm. trying to find things, but really that's yeah. where the innovation comes from, and how you eventually get to something like that. Yeah, yeah, I I can't tell you how often I see. I see something on the news or, or just pop up. I you know I use a lot of Google alerts. I get like 50 emails a day about some new thing published, and I'll tweet it out or I'll tell someone about it, and the response is why why is anyone researching that? I'm like because why not? Like it's there. We might as well know about it, and who knows? There might be some kind of use that could be world changing or life saving. Why why leave any stone unturned if you if you've got a stone there? You know, um, yeah yeah. Um, so in a, in a very odd transition back to, uh, uh, the, the, the magic mushrooms and stuff, uh, medical use there, obviously people use them for a variety of reasons. Um, most of the time in medical, most of in medical use, there's a, a shaman type person that, oh, really? that leads you through the, the experience. And so okay. they, they, and that's how it originally was done in Central America, where it was used by uh, people who lived there. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, that seems to be an important way to avoid um, bad, going down bad alleys um, and wrong side of the tracks and things like that. Sure. Uh, you know, so that you have the shaman to guide you and reassure you and send you down the right path. So sure. I think that's very important, and it seems to be very important for the medicinal uses of of this um, this mushroom. Do are there other are there other animals that use mushrooms for the same kind of purposes? I I don't really know how you would know that um, or how you would tell. So I, are there? So there's another hallucinogenic mushroom that's called the fly agaric, Amanita muscaria. Uh, okay. The bright red, the bright red thing with the white dots on it that you see in all the artsy fartsy depictions of. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I have seen squirrels with their cache of Amanita muscaria up in trees. <laughs> they collected all these and they're sitting up in in the crook of a tree. And huh. so I don't know what they're doing with them, and <laughs> I have to assume they're hallucinating. But Interesting. I, but I don't know how you tell if a squirrel hallucinates because they do all kinds of stuff. Also, reindeer. But we're saving that for an episode in December. So, so kind of moving away from some of the really positive stuff associated with with fungi. Um, what are some of more of like the the negative impacts? I know uh, one that I see in Minnesota mentioned a lot. Um, of course, like white nose syndrome, um, impacting bat populations. Are are there are there is there anything else kind of going on? either locally or globally where where it's a bad thing and basically the cause is you know so fungi bat, bat white nose syndrome is the main thing that's affecting animals uh, okay. that seems to be an introduced species uh, and it grows this fungus is really weird uh, it um, pseudogymnoascus uh, destructans and it 
it grows, its optimal temperature growth is four degrees centigrade, which is around 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. So it likes this really cold temperature, and that's what temperature is in the bat um, hibernaculum, the place where they hibernate. White nose syndrome is, uh, it's honestly kind of terrifying. It's causing so much damage on such a large scale. Um, it's, it's difficult to really put to words. As of last year, um, it has been found in 33 states and seven Canadian provinces. Um, it has been detected in California as of this year. And yeah, basically it, it works by um, causing them to wake up early so they'll, they'll leave their, their hidey hole for the winter uh, and burn up their calories. And of course, there's no food, there's no insects for them to be eating. And it just wipes them out. I mean, there's whole whole colonies almost every winter that they find where just thousands and thousands of bats are just, they're just gone. The fact that it's moving across the country makes it even more terrifying. And like you said, uh, the connection, um, you know, as far as it's spread, it's, it's us. Um, in fact, we went down to, I think it was Mystery Cave, Mystery Cave in southern Minnesota, and they had this really cool setup. It was almost like a conveyor belt that when you walked over it, um, it, it, it popped up a whole bunch of suds to wipe, you know, to basically clean away any of the spores that might be left over on your shoes, um, both before you went in the cave and after. Um, so basically, here it, here it is. Here's the ultimate thing. If you are a cave explorer, spelunker kind of person, just just clean your gear. Clean your gear. It's not that hard. Uh, maybe more devastating are things like Dutch elm disease and chestnut blight. Oh, sure, so these, sure. So these, are, so these are also from introduced species. Uh, Dutch elm disease actually came from China. Uh, okay. And in China, they, uh, there's been a long association between Dutch elm disease and the, and the trees and the elms. And so there's kind of an arms race where the tree becomes more resistant and the fungus becomes more virulent uh, until you get a very high level of resistance and virulence in both of those. And so there's not much damage done. Uh, but this really virulent fungus comes to the, is brought into the U.S. and the trees have never seen it. They don't have any resistance to it. And so that just wipes them out. And so the, you know, that has devastated the elm population. And the same thing with chestnut blight, the same idea, probably from, came from China uh, and uh, you wiped out chestnuts in most of their range. And so there are other things. There's uh, oak wilt. You've heard, probably heard about in Minnesota. Yes. I've seen, I've yes. seen boards about oak wilt in Minnesota. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's one attacking uh, dogwood in the south. So there's plenty of these introduced species that are causing harm to um so lots of lots of plants. There's also the thing with bananas that we didn't quite get to, where um, some predictions are that uh, some of the most popular banana crops could be wiped out in uh, less than less than a decade. Not necessarily the end of all bananas, but definitely the most popular bananas, because as many people don't realize, uh, some of the most popular store-bought bananas, like the Cavendish banana all originated from one plant. So they're basically clones with the same DNA, the same genetics, which is kind of just a setup for failure in the face of disease. Uh, so I've seen, I've seen some like uh, uh, videos and things of, of these types of fungi that can basically zombify um, 
certain kinds of insects, ants and things in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a recent, I feel like relatively recently in pop culture, um, there's some video games and, and movies where, um, you know, used to the, there was like, oh, this virus is wiping out humanity or this bacteria, but it's kind of shifted to like, oh, now it's this this fungal-based thing or there's these spores in the air. Is there something about... Uh, is it just because fungi is so so unique and so interesting, or is there something about its uh, uh, structure or something that makes it a uh, more likely candidate of causing damage, or or, or uh, makes it more difficult to fight as compared to a virus or bacteria? Yes, absolutely. So th- there are, first of all, it, it's relatively rare for a fungus to be able to infect people because they have to be able to grow at 98 degrees. And so most fungi can't do that. And there's some evidence scientifically that mammals were selected for because they were warm blooded and they could Mm -hmm. fight fungal infections. Really? Interesting. The dinosaurs dinosaurs could not. Again, future episode topic, sort of. So, um, now I forgot where I was going because that was so interesting. Uh, (laughs) Oh, so. Uh, so remember we talked about that fungi and animals are closely related and they yes. share a lot of physiology. And so when you, when you get a bacterial infection, we're not very closely related to them. So there are lots of things that can kill the bacteria without killing us. But when you get okay. a fungal infection, we're so closely related, there's a very, very limited set of things that can be attacked without killing the person. Oh, and okay. so fin- finding drugs that, uh, that can kill fungal infections without hurting the person are not very many. There's there's fewer than a few dozen. Interesting. And there's about huh. seven or there's about seven or eight targets that they can hit. Okay. And most of them have side effects. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Because you, <laughs> because you can't totally get the fungus without hurting the person. Yeah, there's going to be some level at which you're you're probably harming something internally. Okay. Okay, um, in in a in a changing climate, uh, what what does that look like for fungi? I mean, if it helps to look more locally. Um, yeah, so, know, in, so in the last twenty years, uh, we've seen the invasion of several different kinds of fungi that we never saw before in Wisconsin. And so one example is uh, chlorophyllum molybdites, which is a green spored fungus that is uh, actually a really common cause of poisoning. Uh, you get a projectile vomiting, projectile diarrhea at the same time. Fun fact, that's also how you create a singularity. And on that note, let's take a break. The wildlife is joining forces with High Coppers, a central Minnesota nonprofit whose vision we share to connect people to nature through hiking events and educational learning experiences. On the second Saturday of each month, join me at the Stearns County, Minnesota Park for a hike, each one with a different theme, like the social network of trees, beavers, dragonflies, and more. Learn more at thewildlife.blog or on hikehopper.org. Okay, where were we? Just not as Oh, fine. <laughs> Uh, and so it's, it's a common fairy ring mushroom in lawn, so it grows in rings. And so we had not seen this in Wisconsin until about 20 years ago. 
it was it was more it was a southern mushroom like southern illinois down from here mm -hmm. uh, but it's found its way here and now it's really really common in the summers uh, when it's hot uh, they form their fruiting bodies and uh, you know these are really big significant fungi that we would have seen if they had been here before yeah they grow in yeah. the lawns and people go there uh, and this has been repeated with several other kinds of fungi. There's a white bracket fungus, Smedes uh, gibosa, that we that was a southern fungus uh, that we never saw before about maybe 15 years ago, uh, and it's made its way north, and now it's exceedingly common. And it's just, it's this big white thing that we would have noticed before. Uh, you know, actually on on a very similar um so when you you said shelf and that's what threw me on this so like when you're when you're out in the woods and you see like these these weird um shelf-like protrusions coming out of trees but they're they're like wood they like feel like wood is that fungi or is that yeah. something else entirely yeah those are fungi so they are um many of those are perennial so okay. they have they have very thick walled hyphae in them uh, with a lot of chitin, and so they interweave with one another and line up parallel, so they become very strong, and so they feel like wood, um, but they're just these layers and layers that a new layer forms every year uh, to produce spores. Oh, That's okay. another strategy, other than you know forming a mushroom and then dying back. That makes sense. And I've I've wondered that for years, and you know sometimes it's one of those things where. You wonder it. You could probably just look it up, and then, and then for whatever reason, you never do. Um, so now I, you, now I have my answer. Okay. If you see one, you know that uh, you, you, uh, that's fallen, you can cut it parallel to where the tree would have been, and mm -hmm. then you can crack it open and see the layers of, of oh, cores cool. that are there. I'll have to do that. <laughs> I don't recommend um, live ones off the tree, but you can use a, a dead one. Yeah, yeah. We kind of leave things, leave things be. So, so I'm trying to look at my uh, list here from, from listeners, and I think, I think, oh, yep, they would have been upset. Um, probably most important one, for for them at least. Um, I, I kind of am just shoving the other stuff down their throat and hoping they enjoy it. Um, when it comes to identifying the edible ones, what what is the best approach? And and this is something that my wife is also she's. She's arguably um, better than me at um, identifying different types of fungi and stuff. And, and she's been trying really hard to, to figure out like, okay, well, what can I eat? How do I know for sure it's what I'm looking at? Um, we both are in some different Facebook groups. Sometimes they can be a, a bit, um, I, I don't want to use the word elitist, but I guess I just did. But <laughs> where they'll... No, it's not elitist at all. It's, it's, too, it's too egalitarian. There's <laughs> too many sophomores in there. The sure. Who I, think they know what they're doing but don't. No offense. Yeah, to it, well, no, I mean, it's in, it uh, there have been people who, you know, they'll comment and say, oh, yeah, you can eat that, and it's it's toxic. And no, <laughs> like, like, please, if you don't know. Um, so I guess that's kind of my question is if you, if you uh, are really wanting to – be someone who uh, wants to get out there and learn how to, to forage and, and learn what things are. I mean, is there is there a certain field guide that you would recommend? Uh, do you recommend going with a person? Uh, what, would you, what would you? The absolute best way is to join a mushroom club. Mushroom club. Mushroom club. Mushroom club. Okay. And so you've got one in the Twin Cities, Minnesota Mycological Society. Really nice people. You should take a okay. visit. 
and they have forays uh, where they go out and hunt for mushrooms. Uh, but they also have weekly um, meetings, I believe still, that they, they bring in mushrooms and talk about how to identify them. And so okay. there's no substitute for seeing the mushroom in 3D. Uh, yeah. And, and smelling yeah. it and touching it and feeling it. And even better is to be able to see it where it lives. So you know what mm-hmm. kind of places to look for a particular mushroom. So that's okay. really the best way to learn. If you have a mushroom club near you, there are also, you know, you know, statewide and national forays and things like that that you can go to to learn from experts. And the second best is maybe even better is to have someone personally who knows about mushrooms to take you in the woods and show you things. You sure. get more attention that way, but that's a harder thing to find. Whereas the mm-hmm. mushroom people are so friendly and they 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 want to help you. And you can also learn from books and from the internet. That's a little more difficult uh, because you see one picture of the mushroom and right. you don't know how about the variation in it. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I know we, we live in a different different era um, when it comes to that kind of thing. Obviously, back in the day, you didn't have the internet to, to be able to try to look, look things up. And right. um, everyone wants that easy, the easiest way to do it uh, when it comes to identifying and stuff. And I, I think that's might be where some of like the, the impatience comes from uh, on some, some of like the online groups and stuff. Um, but you have, that, to, you have to be sure of your source. That's mm-hmm. always the, the, you know, that's true of everything on the internet and everything in your life. You should know where the source is. And mm-hmm. where the source is. so you, you need to learn from people who know what they're doing. Which makes sense. <laughs> Hear that? So don't be a jerk and know your source. So there you have it. There is so much to know and learn about the fungus among us. Far too much for us to try and cover in just one episode or even two. Nevertheless, this episode is a two-parter. So next week, check out our interview with Stanford's own Dr. Kabir Pei on his groundbreaking research on the Wood Wide Web. The end of this episode is hardly the end, but it is ending. At least until next week. But before we go... So, um, Mrs. Squirrel, now that I, I have you here, what, what do squirrels hallucinate? Nuts! Oh, okay. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Last time on Animal Sound of the Week, the secret special sound was the common loon. And guess what? We actually, for the first time ever, in the almost two years of doing the Animal Sound of the Week, had a guess. And the guess was accurate. So they get a prize. That prize goes to All Things Minnesota Nature, um, a, a, a very awesome Instagram account who post things all Minnesota nature. And yeah, yeah, we will be in touch. You get a very special prize. This week's sound. All right, get those ears ready. It goes a little like this. I can't make that noise. Special thanks to our member supporters, Matt Capel, Chris Trenkel, Andrea Lloyd, Megan Gariani, and Bridget Fitzgerald. Without your help, our show would not be possible. If you're listening and you're like, wow, 
They sound cool and special. You're right! And so can you. You can become a member of the wildlife for as little as $1 per month. Details and a complete freakishly long list of community and merchy benefits can be found on patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. Thank you to those of you who purchased the wildlife merch at the wildlife.blog shop to show your love. And special thanks to our guest for the episode, Dr. Tom Volk. Definitely check out his website. It's seriously awesome. The link can be found in the episode description wherever you're listening. And thank you for listening. That's you with an italicies. Yeah, that's right. You. You with the earphones in. You on your daily commute. You taking a break at work. You listening when you probably shouldn't be, but you are anyway. Yeah, you. Be sure to leave a rating and a comment wherever you are. Subscribing? That helps too. It helps make our show more visible and to let us know who uh, makes up our audience and, and, and what we can do to make the show better. Remember, tune in next week to hear part two with Dr. Kabir Pei.